Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. <laughs> thank you, man. I appreciate that. And I'm sorry I said that. In- <laughs> Wow. Well, this is exciting for me. I just have to let you know that it's been at the end of this month or toward the end of this month, about three years since I've been behind a pulpit. Did my thing just fall out? Is that why you're always touching your ear? So that's what I need to do. Is it good now? We on? Okay. So what did I just say? Oh, at the end of this month will be about three years since I've been in the pulpit, so bear with me. I will do the best that I can possibly do, and I'm going to look at the time here to make sure that I don't go over, what, 20 minutes now? Something like that? Thanks for the long introduction, by the way. <clears throat> no. And I don't remember. I, he has, and his sister and his sisters all have what I call the Millis memory. He can, well, Cheryl, I've told you this, many of these stories before, but I, and so I'm just trying to be like Brother Hagen is what I'm doing. Um, but in kindergarten, I made Cheryl cry because I said you had an 11 in your name or something like that. <laughs> How do you know that? I'm not quite sure that you really remember that. I'm not calling you a liar, but I mean, I can't remember back past maybe six years old, seven years old, something like that. So thanks for the uh, embarrassing story. I appreciate that. Uh, I'll try to embarrass you at least once tonight. But uh, I, I know that I am not as eloquent and well-versed as Scott. Uh, I picked him up one time before he was married at a place in Urbana. I don't remember where it was, but I remember asking him if I could use his restroom. And I went in the bathroom, and I'm using his restroom, and I look down in the basket, and there's a copy of War and Peace. <laughs> That's Scott. He's probably read every, every book in the library that he has in his office and probably remembers most of what's in those books. So I'm not as well-versed as him. I, I can't preach like Pastor Mike. I'm not as youthful as Matt, pardon the pun, bad pun. And I'm not as smooth as David. I want to tell you, David was smooth. Very good message and, and an excellent drummer. I can't say that about the others that I just mentioned, but... Uh, So I'm going to just be Jeff tonight, and I hope you receive something from this. I've had a lot of people ask me, what are you teaching on tonight? And my standard answer has been, I'm going to teach through the book of Revelation in 25 minutes. (laughs) Which is not only impossible, but I'm not going to do that. So that would be a horrible thing to try, actually. I'm going to teach on the believer's authority tonight. This is an age-old charismatic word of faith doctrine. Um... So if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 8, and this should be, I would think, a familiar story to most of us. If it's not, it will become one. Matthew chapter 8, just remember that even if you've heard this message or read Brother Hagin's book a hundred times, there's always something more we can learn. And I can hear Keith Moore teach on the same thing 20 times and learn something new every time. Of course, it's Keith Moore too, I mean, so... And I'm not going to teach an hour and a half like Keith Moore does, obviously, either. And this is uh, obviously a a message that could easily be, in my opinion, an eight-week series. So I'm not even going to scratch the surface tonight in 20 minutes. But in Matthew chapter 8, 
And I want to say this first. Um, faith and authority, as we'll see in this passage, are inexorably linked. A Scott word. Did I, use, did I use it correctly? It would have been better if I used it on the oblique, maybe. But did you learn that in the military, by the way? Is that a mil- right oblique march? Do you mind if Scott and I have a conversation real quick? Right oblique march and that sort of thing? Okay, it's a 45-degree march, right? Ah, okay. So I do remember a few things. Uh, but faith and authority are linked very strongly. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. And this is the story of the centurion's servant. It says, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, who was the centurion? We've, we've heard this, and Scott's taught on this many times, I know, but the centurion was a Roman soldier, and he was probably in charge of about 100 men. And the Jews did not like centurions. They did not, matter of fact, they probably didn't like the Roman soldiers at all because the Roman Empire was oppressing the Jewish Empire or the Jewish uh, people anyway. And so the centurion was obviously a Gentile. I think that's, at least I think that's pretty obvious. Concerning Jesus' response, for many of us, I think that that probably would have been enough. I'll come and heal him. Fantastic. Okay, I'll show you where my house is. Come and heal him. But that wasn't what the centurion said, was it? That wasn't his, his um, response, and we'll see that in a moment. So the centurion also, oh, let, let's go ahead and read. Let me finish up here, or lead, read a couple more verses anyway. Matthew chapter 8, verse 8. Let's, let's move on. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me, And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, the centurion refers to Jesus as Lord. I think that's very interesting, and Lord has a lot of different, I love definitions because it helps me understand the context or helps me understand what's being said. Let me just read a few of the uh, seven different definitions of the word Lord in the Greek. It means he to whom a person or a thing belongs, about which he has power of deciding. It, of course, means master and lord. It means the possessor and disposer of a thing, the owner, one who has control of the person in the state, or, you know, in our state or in a country, it would mean the sovereign, prince, or chief. It is the title of honor expressive of respect and reverence, which servants greet their masters with. And so my point is, the centurion was calling him Lord and showing him great respect. He said, I'm not even worthy that you should come to my house and under my roof. Well, how does the centurion know Jesus? How does the centurion even know that all Jesus has to do is speak a word, which we'll see in a moment? He obviously had heard some things about Jesus. I don't think that's a stretch to say that. I'm I'm not trying to read into Scripture I'm trying to draw things out of it. The centurion obviously had no, knew Jesus' reputation, and he had great respect for it. Understanding authority, I'm going to list uh, a couple of things here. Understanding authority means, number one, understanding our position. And our position in Christ is that we are joint heirs with Christ, and we are seated with him in heavenly places, far above, far above 
principality, power, might, dominion, and every name that's named. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places far above principality, power, might, dominion, and every name that's named. That's where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the position that Jesus has, and we are with him and seated with him in heavenly places. I would tell my congregation, I don't know how many times I said this, the devil is under our feet. He's under our feet. I would get, I would get almost irritated, and I'm sorry to have to say that, with people that would talk about the devil as if the devil had some sort of power over them. Or that the devil was somehow as strong or as powerful as God. That is a false teaching, folks. If you hear somebody talk about that, encourage them and strengthen them in the Lord and tell them from Scripture and show them that the devil is under our feet. There is no reason for any believer to ever fear the devil. And I know there's Christians out there. I've met them. I've talked to them. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to sound condescending. I'm not angry about this, but it does frustrate me a little bit, a little bit because it's obviously bad teaching that they've heard or that they've extracted this from, this idea that somehow the devil is going to beat them up. The devil can only do to us what we allow him to do. Nothing else. He's under our feet. One of the, and I don't want to get off too far on this because I don't have that much time tonight, but let me take a little bit of a rabbit trail. One of the doctrines that I have come against in many of the years that I was teaching at the church that I was at was this idea that we have to pull down strongholds. Anybody remember the 80s uh, teachings about pulling down strongholds over cities and every city has strongholds. You know, they have strongholds of homosexuality, strongholds of alcohol, strongholds of poverty, and we need to pull these strongholds down over these cities. And if we'll do that, then Jesus can come in and, and, and God can come into these cities and everything will be better. Well, I have a lot of questions about that. I love questions. And I would love to get with some of these teachers that taught that and ask them, number one, where does it say in Scripture that we have to pull down strongholds? And, and in, in that Scripture that it's actually talking about that, in context, it's talking about strongholds in our mind, imaginations, thoughts that try to exalt themselves against Christ. So that's, that's the context. That's what those strongholds are. But where does it say that we pull down strongholds over cities? Where did Jesus ever teach that? Where did the disciples or the apostles ever teach that we should do that? And if they don't teach it, if they didn't believe it, if they didn't uh, instruct us to do that, then why were we doing it? And this went on for a long time. I remember they would think we, we should fill stadiums in San Francisco and pull down the strongholds of homosexuality over San Francisco. You know what? Homosexuality is probably worse today in San Francisco than it's ever been. What happened to all these strongholds they pulled down? And the, another question is, if we pull them down, why would we want to pull a stronghold down when they're under our feet? How can we should be pulling them up, and why would we want to pull them up? You see how this doctrine, that doctrine doesn't make any sense from a biblical perspective? And I'm sure that there are probably still Christians doing that kind of stuff today. I had a pastor in Sullivan, and he was a nice guy. He was an Assembly of God pastor, great guy. But he uh, handed me a brochure that he'd put together because he was putting together a meeting for the county, and he wanted all the pastors to be involved in pulling down strongholds over Sullivan County. 
And I liked him. He was a nice guy. But, you know, those are awkward conversations to have with other pastors. And I said, I'm sorry. I said, I don't agree with that theology and that doctrine. And I said, I, I really don't want to be part of it. And I tried to explain it to him. He, he really wasn't, didn't want to listen, which is fine. That's his choice. But my whole point in saying all that is understand your position, where you are at, and who you are in Christ. That's probably one of the number one things when it comes to exercising authority. When I was a police officer, I understood who I was and what I could do. I understood that I raised my hand and swore to uh, execute the laws of the state of Illinois and the city ordinances of Champaign and so on and so forth. And that's what I did. I was not allowed, and I wouldn't have done this, but what if I had walked into an emergency room after a shooting victim went to the hospital and started telling the doctors what to do? I mean, how ridiculous would that be? I didn't have the authority to do that. That wasn't the lane that I was in. I was, I was a police officer. I'm enforcing the laws. I'm, I'm investigating crimes. But I'm not going to go in and tell the doctors what to do in the emergency room because I, I would have had no clue and it would have been out of my realm of authority. And I think, unfortunately, there are some Christians today who don't understand where, where or what the realm of their authority is. And that's one of the first things that we have to know and have to understand from Scripture. Okay, that's as far as I want to go with that. <laughs> where was I at? Ephesians 1.20, I think I've alluded to this already, obviously. 120 uh, through 22 says, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. And so remember, we are seated with Christ and that is where our position is and the enemy is under our feet. Number two, Understanding who stands behind us. When I was a police officer, I understood that I had the full force of the Champagne PD behind me when I was executing or enforcing laws. I remember uh, one time I went to a domestic situation out in southwest Champagne. That was my beat. And I responded, and this guy who was drunk was smashing out these little, there was a picture window, and then there were these little windows around it. He was smashing out these little windows and arguing with this woman. They were standing out in front of the house. The woman was trying to get away from him, and she just wanted to get in her car and leave. And so I thought, well, just let her get in the car and leave, and we'll finish this thing tonight. We'll just, you know, and then I'll tell him he has to leave and so on and so forth, or give him a ride somewhere, because he, he was, I could tell he was kind of a little drunk or high on something. Well, then, as she's getting in the car, he turns around to me and starts doing this and says, we're going to fight. Well, now you've just taken it to a whole new level. Because that's called aggravated assault. Because I'm a police officer, that's the aggravating circumstance. I'm a police officer. If you hit a police officer or threaten a police officer, it's automatically an aggravated crime. That's a felony. So he just committed a felony by saying, we're going to fight and threatening me. So now I'm obligated to take this guy to jail. But I'm out there by myself. So I got on my radio and I said, 773 is code one. Code one means I need help now. And whenever, especially on the night shift, if an officer got on the radio and said they were code one, man, you started heading toward that direction right now and as quickly as you could. 
And I knew that when I went code one on the radio, I probably had four or five police officers coming in moments, or at least as fast as they could, even though I was way out in southwest Champaign. So this guy and I start wrestling, and I get him on the ground, and it was all like, he was a pretty hefty, I mean, he wasn't as tall as I was, but he was, we used to use the word husky. My mom used to say I was husky. That's all I am tonight, I'm just husky. <laughs> I'm not fat, I'm husky. So this guy was pretty husky, and that was all I could do to hold this guy down until my backup got there. But I knew they were coming. I knew I had help on the way. And Scott, Pastor Scott, I think, mentioned this in a pulpit, in the, from the pulpit last Sunday about the body of Christ and how we know we have assistance and we have help and we have people that love us and care for us and that will pray for us and help us in our time of need. That's what the body of Christ does. And so we have to understand we're not in this alone. If you're battling something that you don't feel like you have the faith to overcome, trust me, if you will tell somebody and be open with somebody in the body of Christ who understands the authority of the believer, they can speak to that circumstance or situation. Or if you need healing, they can speak to your body in the name of Jesus and expect it to come to pass. Amen? And we will see things happen. Remember, faith and authority are linked. So we have to understand that we're not alone. Understand who's behind us. And I wasn't, when I was on the police department, I was not enforcing the law in my own strength. Um, number three, understanding that we can, what we can and cannot do. Understanding what we can and cannot do. There are many things that we can exercise authority over as Christians and as believers. But I cannot exercise authority over things that are solely God's authority, such as kings and nations. And I want to be careful with this because we should pray. We're instructed in Romans to pray for those that are in authority over us so that we can do what? So that we can live in peace. But we're not instructed to pray for those that we don't like who are in authority over us, that God will take them out. Am I right? If I'm wrong, tell me, because listen, I'm open to correction. Give me scripture, though. I used to tell my congregation this all the time. I don't care if somebody disagrees with me. I, I welcome that. But if you disagree, bring scripture. Don't just say, I disagree. I think that's wrong. Okay, because my next question is going to be what? Why? Or show me in Scripture why you disagree. That's going to be my next question or my next statement. So, unfortunately, we, hear, we do hear a lot of Christians today talking about the president or other people and praying that God will take them out of office. I don't think they mean kill them. I hope they don't. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother rabbit trail I don't want to go down. But it's not our job to raise up kings or take kings out of office. That's God's position. That's, those are things that God does. That's within, within his purview. Another Pastor Scott word there. And I'm over on the oblique when I said it. Um, but we have to be careful as Christians if we're going to exercise authority in Jesus' name to do it for things that we've been given authority over. I cannot exercise authority in any realm God has not provided for me to exercise authority in. For instance, the devil's fate, that's in God's hands, not mine. We know what the devil's fate is in Scripture, but we're not going to be the one casting him into hell. That's God's judgment. 
we're not, we're not in authority over people's salvation. How often have we found ourselves, and maybe you haven't, but I, I hope you haven't. I hope I haven't done this, but I'm not saying that I haven't. How many times have we as Christians judged or been the judge of whether we think somebody's even born again or not? Whether they're going to heaven or hell, that's what we're saying. Now, it's a concern, I get that. And we should be concerned about people. We should be concerned about their spiritual state and whether or not they're serving the Lord and following the Lord and so on and so forth. But we don't, we're not the judge of, of people to heaven and hell. And if we find ourselves slipping into that mindset, we need to back up very quickly. Because heaven and hell, the judgment to heaven and hell, is only in God's hands, not our hands. There are things in this life that we judge and that we should judge, but that's not one of them. And so we have to be very careful about uh, exercising, trying to exercise authority in areas that we're not uh, authorized to exercise authority in. One of the best examples of understanding and exercising earthly authority I ever witnessed was with a sergeant that I had. His name was Jerry Schweihart. Does anybody remember Jerry Schweihart? He was the mayor of Champaign, I think, for two or three terms after he left the police department. Well, Jerry was uh, in, up in investigations for over 20 years, and before he retired, he, came, he took the sergeant's exam and became a sergeant on the police department, and the only sergeant slide open is always on night shift. So for the last several years of his police career, he was the sergeant on night shift. He was my sergeant on night shift, I think, until I left in 1995. <clears throat> Is this water mine, by the way? Thank you. Pardon me for a moment. My throat was getting dry. So. But uh, Jerry was um, kind of a quintessential 60s cop. Uh, man, by the way, you know law enforcement has changed a lot. I don't think I could be a police officer today, and I'm not putting them down. I, I wouldn't be able to put up with all of the social work and politics that are involved in law enforcement. That, I mean, their hands are tied, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. I'm not being critical of every, every law enforcement agency everywhere, I just from what I see. But, but Jerry's, Jerry was a 1960s police officer, and... Uh, the first time he came into briefing on night shift, he had an old, worn duty belt, leather duty belt, and we all wore nylon then, I mean, by the time Jerry became a sergeant, old leather duty belt that had marks on it and all this. His holster was leather, and it looked like his uh, six-inch 38 was going to fall right out of it. He had one pair of handcuffs, and most police officers carried at least two on their duty belt. Uh, he didn't carry mace or caps, capsun spray, you know, the pepper spray. Uh, and I think he might have had a, a, a nightstick holder or ring. i got to watch my time. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, so, so I'm, I take a call, and, and Jerry had these half glasses he would always look over like this. He'd stand, he, we had a pulpit in the briefing room, and he'd stand there like this, look over his half glasses at everybody and tell us what we needed to know for that night. And I went on a call in the north end of Champaign, and um, this woman who I think, if I remember right, was the aunt of this 21 or 22-year-old young man, and he was living at his aunt's house, and uh, he'd been living there for quite some time, but she wanted him out because she didn't like all the friends that he hung around and the people she, that he brought into her house. 
And so I said, look, your aunt wants you to go. You're going to have to leave. And if he disobeys a lawful order or if he gets, if there's disorderly conduct, I mean, there's a lot of charges, especially city charges you could charge somebody with in a situation like that. I didn't want to have to take him to jail. I, didn't, I just wanted him to leave because then I don't have to write a report. I can get in my car and I can say the subject left on 10-8 and just go on my way, right? And so I'm standing there arguing with this kid, this 21, this young man. I'm, I'm standing there arguing with him. He doesn't want to leave. He said, look, I live here. I've got all my stuff's here. I don't have to go anywhere. I said, she wants you out. It's her house. You need to leave. And I got pretty authoritative with him. And he still stood there and argued with me. Jerry walks in because he was my backup. Sergeant Swihart walks in and he looked at him. Let's say his name was Johnny. He said, Johnny, get out. And he said, yes, sir. And he walked out. And I stood there and thought, what, what just happened? I've been arguing with this kid for three or four minutes before Jerry gets there, and he says, get out. And he went. He left just like that. And I asked Jerry afterward, I said, how did you do that? And he kind of laughed and chuckled. He said, listen, he said, I've arrested him, I've arrested his dad, and I've arrested his grandfather. <laughs> he said, he knows that if he doesn't leave when I tell him to, he's going to jail. It's as simple as that. And he knew his authority, he exercised his authority, and he knew what he would do if, he, if the young man didn't do And the young man knew that. You know, the devil should know that about us. The devil knows the name of Jesus. He knows it really well. And he knows that he's got to leave. He knows that healing is affected in our bodies in the name of Jesus. He knows that the devil, if he tries to squeeze our finances, if he tries to squeeze our mind, if he tries to play with, he knows that if we tell him to leave in Jesus' name, he has to do it. We've got the kingdom of heaven behind us. We've got the, the God of the universe. Jesus, who spoke the worlds into existence, is standing behind us. And the devil is under our feet. Why are we afraid of any of this? Why are we not seeing things happen now? And the only thing that I can think is that sometimes when we speak the name of Jesus, there's either not faith in our hearts that it's really, really going to happen. We think, well, it might happen. We know the right words to say. We know the right words to pray. We've been taught these things over and over in our lives, especially as charismatic Word of Faith Christians. So why aren't we seeing more miracles? Why aren't we seeing more deliverances? Why aren't we seeing more mountains move? I want to see that in my lifetime. We've, we've had people in the past we talk about. Brother Hagin. We talk about uh, who's Smith Wigglesworth. We talk about all these great men of God that, that saw healings all the time. They saw mountains move all the time. Well, what was their secret? It's like Jerry Schweihart walking in and saying, get out now. And the guy gets out. Just like that. What's the secret? If I can use that word, it's not a secret. The secret is understanding who we are and understanding who's behind us and understanding that the devil has to go when we tell him to go. Now, let me finish up because i got to quit. Let me, let me just say that <laughs> it was very interesting because now, if you don't know, I'm working as the director of security at Marketplace Mall, which is a real change from law enforcement because security is totally different than law enforcement. Totally different. You know, I can't, I can't do nearly the stuff that I could do at Marketplace that I could do when I was a police officer, which is fine. I can deal with that, but it's a whole learning, a whole new learning process for me. But 
we followed these, uh, these three young men who, one of them was uh, one of the retailers, one of the managers said he took a shirt from our store and put it in his backpack and walked out. So, but this retailer said, yeah, he took it and, and one of my officers saw this uh, individual with two other guys and she said, That's, he fits the description of the one that stole the shirt out of this store. So we follow him from the food court at the mall all the way up toward JCPenney where that, where that kids area is, if you've been there before. And these three walk into that kids area and I said, hey, I said, uh, he said, you've been following us. And I'm thinking, that's very observant of you. Yeah, yeah, we've been following you. And I said, the reason we're following you is because one of the retailers said that you took something from their store and didn't pay for it. Is it in your backpack? Now, what I can't do that I used to be able to do is if I had 51% or more, uh, we call that probable cause. If I had probable cause, I could take his backpack and search it as a police officer can't do that as a security officer. Can't just take it and search it. So what I do is ask questions. I said, well, if you didn't take anything, and he said, I didn't take anything. I said, if you didn't take anything, then you won't mind me looking in your backpack, right? And he said, no, you can't look in my backpack. I said, why not? You didn't take anything. What difference does it make? Well, he wouldn't let me look in his backpack. So I looked at all three of them, and I said, I want all three of you out of the mall right now. And they all got up. They said, okay, and they walked out. And I thought, Wow, it took me about 28 years after law enforcement, but, but maybe I've got the Jerry, Jerry Schweihart anointing now, you know. And I was pretty pleased with that. And I said, you know, so anyway, I just thought I'd share that with you. I, I was pretty happy uh, patting myself on the back, I guess, or at least thinking maybe I'm exercising a little bit more authority than I did back then, you know. So I, that's all the time I've got tonight. I got to quit. And I've gone over. I'm sorry, Pastor Scott. I'm sorry. But uh, just wanted to encourage you tonight, know your authority, stand in your authority, speak it with passion, speak it with faith. And we will see more happen that way than we will if we're not sure that something's going to happen. Because that's being double-minded. And we shouldn't expect to receive anything from God if we're double-minded. Amen? All right, I'm going to quit. So. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.